You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by pastor of Next Generations, Mark Hockley. extra hard to make this possible so that we could gather, got all together as one. It's fantastic to be together and to see that. And so we thank you for that. And um, we just pray that today, God, that you would open our eyes, God, to um, your word, God, that we would see your truth, Lord, and that we would um, we would hear it, God, that we would process it and that we would act on it, God. We want to live for you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Um, I was at a pastor's lunch, and um, this was a, a little while ago, and the, the pastor that was talking to the pastors, he was telling us a story about a, um, a Christian mission organization, and this mission organization, um, they, they were noticing that a, a disproportionately high amount of their people, um, as they were sending them out as missionaries, they weren't making it past five years. And so they were trying to figure out why, and so they, they conducted a study, and then they went and they went back to um, a number of other organizations, and they, they said, hey, will you do this study with us? We really want to understand what's going on. And so they did this study to try to figure out why uh, a very large portion of their missionaries weren't making it past five years in the field, and the results that they came back with were very startling. And the results weren't that these people didn't love the Lord. The results weren't that they weren't qualified. But one of the main reasons why these people were dropping out of the mission field um, before five years, even though they were talented, even though they loved God with all their heart, was because they could not take correction well. And he put that back to us and said, you know what, if that's going on in our missionaries, then I think we need to be, take this very seriously as pastors as well. And I want to put the same thing to you and say, I think as Christians, we need to take that well. Because I think it's something that we all can sort of admit that we are not um, always fantastic at, is learning to take correction well. So let's dive in. Let's read our text. Let's read Proverbs 9. This is what Proverbs 9 says. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young woman to call from the highest places of the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat my bread and drink my wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects the scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and the years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you will bear it alone. The woman is folly. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by. 
who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread is eaten in secret is pleasant. But he who does not know that the dead are there, and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So in this um, text, we have a contrast between wisdom and foolishness, and we actually have another chiasm. And Dustin talked to you guys last week about chiasms, um, but if you missed that, um, basically what a chiasm is, is the, the central point of what we're looking at is in the middle, right? In, in Western thought, the way that we argue, we have a hypothesis, we have supporting points, and then we have a conclusion. That's how our brains are taught to reason and taught to think. Um, but that's not always true of ancient literature and of Hebrew literature, and so sometimes the writers will use a chiasm where the central point is in the middle. And so we can see the chiasm here. If you look at your text, it's broken up quite nicely. You can see in that first section, you see Lady Wisdom, right? Th that's the first section, is wisdom. And so we're going to look at that first. Then we're going to jump down to 13 through 18, because that's talking about the woman foolishness, right? We see that. So we have wisdom and foolishness contrasted. And then we're going to look at the central point last to help out our brains. But that's actually in the middle, which is verses 7 through 12. And so the, the points on either side, they're, they're supporting, they're pointing towards the middle. And so we're going to see that here this morning. So first, Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom, you see in your text here, it's quite simple. Lady Wisdom is portrayed as a generous and perfect hostess. Right? She's got the table set. She's, got, she's serving meat, which is a big luxury right, to people. Right, that we're, we're very blessed that that doesn't appear to be a luxury to us, um, but that was a tremendous luxury for them. And she has mixed her wine, most likely with honey, spices, that sort of thing, to get a richer taste as opposed to watering it down. Right, she's not a cheap hostess. She's, she's bringing the best, and she's inviting everyone. And so that's what we see with Lady Wisdom. And I want you to notice what's repeated in both wisdom and the foolishness sections, right? They, they, they follow a similar sort of pattern on purpose because they're trying to show us the contrast. And one of the things that they say in here, just to clarify this, is they call in the simple. And that is, that's not meant to be derogatory, um, but that's, um, I think it's simply those who have, they haven't yet decided whether or not they're going to base their life on wisdom or whether they're going to base their life on foolishness because these people they're walking they haven't chosen which house to go into now let's take a minute and look at li uh, woman foolishness look at the contrast that we see here compared to lady wisdom number one we see she's not prepared right we see that she doesn't actually have anything ready right so she invites people in she talks up the party like it's going to be this great grand party but she's not actually prepared so guess what it's all lies, right? And if you notice or you read down to the end of the, the text, what has actually happened? Do you see what actually happened there? All of her guests are actually dead, right? They're all in Sheol. So it's not a great party uh, when all your guests are dead. So now let's look at the, at the middle section, and we're going to obviously land here and take most of our time together. Let's read verses 7 through 9. First, we're going to break it up into two halves. Let's read. 9, 7 to 9. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will still be wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. What do we see here? We see the pattern 
of correction. And I think what's very interesting that we should really pay attention to in this text is to look at the test that God's giving us. The test that God is giving you in order to determine whether or not you've embraced wisdom or whether or not you've embraced foolishness is actually how you respond to correction. That's how you know which path you have chosen, which, which um, you have embraced. It's by how well you respond to correction. Right, so for those who have chosen foolishness, they don't see their own need. They don't see themselves through gospel eyes. They don't see themselves as God sees them. They don't see themselves needing change, right? They don't desire to learn things. They don't want to grow. They're unteachable, right? And so when they when they have that and they, they have an element where they think that they don't need to grow and they think that they're perfect, when someone comes and tries to correct them, what do they do? They react poorly, right, with insults and abuse, right? They react by putting up the walls, right? And Christians, how often can this be us? And this is contrasted in our text by those who choose wisdom, right? With wisdom, they recognize their need to grow. They know that they are far from perfect. They see themselves as God sees them. And how does God see us? God sees us as loved, but also in need of growth, right? He doesn't just want to justify us, right? He also wants to sanctify us, right? And that's important. So they appreciate the correction. They're teachable because they actually desire to grow, Right, and really what this honestly comes down to is really a gospel issue, right? Wise people are willing to change because that is actually a byproduct of the Christian life. That's the goal of the Christian life. It's the byproduct of that. Because what's the goal of the Christian life? The goal of the Christian life, we looked at it two weeks ago, it's to bring glory to God, right? But we are imperfect people, so how do we do that? One of the ways that we bring glory to God is we allow ourselves to be changed more into the image of God. That's how we bring glory to him. We become better mirrors, right, reflecting the goodness of God to those around us because we know the state that we were in before, right? We recognize our sinful, messed up state, and we recognize our need for God, and then we recognize our need to grow, to be more like God. If you remember a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the good fruit, one of the things that we identify that is important if you want to produce good fruit, and we all want to produce good fruit because we don't want to be dead trees, is that we need to resemble the character of God, right? But apart from God, we don't resemble the character of God. So how do we resemble the character of God, right? We need to be taught. We need to be corrected. We need to actually grow. We need to actually change. And so do you see how that is actually a byproduct and it's actually essential if you want to live as a Christian, you don't just get to stay where you are at. And so what we need to do as Christians is we need to approach this, right, with gospel eyes. We need to recognize our sin. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus, right? And when you fix your eyes on Jesus, you see his perfection, and then that's going to contrast to your own failure, your own imperfection, right? But then you need to approach your imperfection and your failure in a healthy way, right? Because so often we do this in an unhealthy way, but you need to approach it in a healthy way, right? The same way that God approaches your failure and imperfection, right? And this is what God does, God loves you with a love that is never going to change, right? Even though he knows you fail, even though he knows you're imperfect, God loves you with a love, if you are a Christian, that's never going to change. But he also is honest with you and desires what's best for you, and so he calls you to something greater in your life than where you are at in this moment, because he knows that you need to grow, and that is for your own joy and also for the glory of God. 
There's many beautiful things about the gospel. We're going to experience those and learn more about them throughout all of eternity. But one of the most beautiful things of the gospel is being fully known, right, in all of your faults and all of your failures and in all the things you've messed up in the past and all the things you're going to mess up in the future, right, all the flaws that you have and yet being fully loved by the creator of the universe. That's one of the beautiful things of the gospel, to be fully known and yet to be fully loved and so we need to recognize that and approach this right in the same healthy way that god does with us right so we're secure in our father's love right knowing that we are loved we don't end up in the other ditch right the the woe is me i'm useless i'm nobody right you are loved by god praise god for that but god also is honest with you and says hey look this is this is for my glory and it's also for your good that i want to change you to make you more like me uh, if you uh, read 2 Timothy 3.16, it's a, quite a well-known verse. This is what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. It says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This is one of the primary um, texts that we look to when we say, why do we have the Bible? And how do we have the Bible? Right? This is one of the primary texts that we look at. Notice what is it's saying here in the text. Right? So the, all scriptures God breathed, and it's profitable for what? Why did God give us his word? It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So don't miss this, right? What's the, at the core of a Christian's life? It's the ability to be taught and the ability to be corrected, right? When we are taught something, we need to have a change in our thinking, or we need to be reminded of something, because maybe it's something that we know, but it hasn't actually made its way into our life, or it made it into our life for a while, and then we forgot about it. So we need to be taught. Uh, we need to be taught. We need reproof. We need correction, right? That's what it says God's word is for, right? With the goal of being changed to be more like God. So to embrace this line of thinking, I just want to ask you some really practical questions to kind of get your brain going. So here's the first little set here. How correctable are you? And maybe to help you figure that out, let me ask you this question. How willing are other people to approach you with correction, right? Because if you can't remember these active, regular times where people want to approach you with correction, then you probably need to work on being more correctable and being more approachable, right? We want to demonstrate, we want to exude that we actually love correction as Christians. As this really is um, a, a byproduct of the goal of the Christian life, right? Because again, we need to look at ourselves through gospel eyes, right? We, we know, right, when what the gospel says that we are not perfect. So the reason that no one's coming to correct you cannot possibly be because you are perfect, right? We, we, we would all say that as Christians, and yet so often we think, well, why are you coming to talk to me about that, right? We need to look at ourselves with gospel eyes and recognize that if no one's coming to talk to us, it's probably our problem and not their problem. Um, but even if you want to pit this on your friends and your spouse and say, you know what, like I'm really open, but just no one ever comes and talks to me, right? Then, we, okay, we got step two for you. How often do you seek correction from a spouse or from a good friend? If I go a little bit farther with this, how often do you um, give correction to your spouse, looking at the flip side of it, when you're not fighting? Right? Because lots of us, all of a sudden, we get very excited to give correction when you're in the middle of an argument, right? And you're like, oh, man, I can't wait to give some correction right now, right? But how does that go? Anyone ever tried that? 
how well does that go over? And, and it does not go over well, right? Not does not go over well at all because it's not real biblical correction, right? On either side of the equation, it's not the appropriate time for correction. And so the appropriate time is to actually have regular times to seek that correction out from your spouse, right? Or from a friend who knows you well, right? To be able to give you good advice. So now looking at that again, you say, how good are you at taking correction? And would your spouse or your good friend, right? Someone that you walk life with, would they agree with the answer that just popped into your head? Or are you really fooling yourself, right? We need to be honest with ourselves about this. One other level that you can use in this to kind of help determine things that I think is helpful is do you seek the wisdom of your kids, right, for where you need to change. A lot of people say, oh, yeah, if you really want to know, ask your spouse. That's true. But a lot of our spouses are just very wonderful people, and so they sometimes soften things a little bit, right? But your kids, right, whether they are young or whether they are grown, they don't often soften things to the same level. Would we not agree, right? And so this is something that you can do to go to your kids and say, hey, what do you see in me that needs to change, right? Because this is something that happens, right? We, we all identify as kids things in our parents that we say, you know what, I, I think I want to do that differently. Um, but yet rarely do we actually go and we seek that advice. Um, this happened to me uh, one time, um, just more by accident. One of the things that we do with our kids is that we, we pray with them every night and we're trying to teach them to pray very biblically. And so we have different categories that we pray each night, like praise and thankful and praying people for people's spiritual needs, praying for the physical needs, that sort of thing. But one of the other ones that we do is confession. And um, our kids like to play this fun and super humbling game where they try to guess what you're going to have to confess um, before we pray. And so one night, um, Jackson looks at me, straight at me, and he goes, Daddy, I know what your confession is tonight. You're praying for patience, aren't you? He's like, <laughs> Right, because that's what kids will do. Right, they they recognize things, right, that they see, and they will tell it like it is. And so I think it's wise to ask your kids. And I think if we flesh this out a little bit more, um, it's really important for us to recognize that both sides of this are really important for us to do well as Christians. Right, because either being bad on either side of the equation isn't really going to cut it. Right, so we need to be good at receiving correction. And we also need to be good at giving correction because both, uh, as a reality, we are sinful people, right? We are prideful people, and so this makes it really difficult for us to do. But luckily, we have a really good example of this given to us in God's Word, and so we're going to look at it. So you can turn with me to Exodus chapter 18, and we're going to start at verse 13. Exodus chapter 18, and we're going to start at verse 13. Give you a second to turn there we're going to stay here for a little bit and we're going to work through this text. Exodus 18, 13, and we're going to read down to verse 24. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all he was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make known to them the statutes of God and his law. 
Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out, for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them of the statutes and the laws and make known them the way which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, for, look for able men and for all people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and you will bear the burden with them. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all the people will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. So we're going to use this text, and we're going to look at it from both sides. We're going to start by looking at the corrector, and then we're going to look at the correctee. All right, so... First one for the corrector is to ask clarifying questions. Um, and I should also clarify, um, a, bul a bulk of this stuff is coming from a great article that I found from a man named John Bloom. He wrote it. The article's called How to Humbly Give and Receive Correction. And so I've got a bunch of his stuff in here that I thought was helpful. But the first one, ask clarifying questions. Look at verse 14. Look, what, is, what does he say? He says, why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning until evening? Right? Asking this question was uh, very wise and very kind. Right? Jethro didn't just jump to a conclusion based on his own perspective. Right? First, he asked and gave a chance for Moses to explain himself. Right? And so this gave Moses a chance to explain what he was doing and why. He explains it, verses 15 and 16. And I think one of the interesting things is that a lot of the time when we are forced to explain why what we do, why we do what we do, we start to realize the error of our own ways. Right? But until we're asked to explain it, we just, it's very easy just to stay caught in the pattern of living life the way that we always have. Number two. Be gracious, but honest. If you look at verses 17 and 18, uh, this is what it says. Understanding this, Jethro said to Moses, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Right? And this is how God deals with us. Right? He's very gracious, but he's very honest. Right? And so Jethro's goal was to lift a burden not just to tear down the intentions of Moses, right? He's trying to, trying to help Moses. He's not just trying to tear Moses down, right? And we can see this, too, with the Lord, right? Do we not, is, if you read through the Bible, what do we see over and over again? It's not the only thing you see, but you see this consistently. We see God being incredibly honest, especially in the Old Testament, right? We see him being very honest with his people, and yet also very gracious, very, very patient, right? And so we want to emulate that when we go to other people as the corrector. Number three, um, we also want to undergird, not undermine. You want to undergird, not undermine. I want you to notice this, that Jethro, um, he had a correction, he had a critique, he didn't attack, right? And this is something that we very easily can confuse these days, right? This is something that society gets very confused on in general, right? Is everything is looked at as an attack, right? And so we need to be careful not to take that on as Christians and also not to use that as the one that's being the corrector, right? He, Jethro doesn't go up to Moses and say, Moses, 
you're a lousy leader. It shouldn't take an administrative genius to know that this thing doesn't scale. How in the world do you plan to lead millions and millions of people? What are you doing? Right? That's not what he did. Right? Jethro's goal wasn't to undermine Moses. He didn't try to undermine his leadership. He tried to undergird him. Right? He had a desire for him to do well. He observed a problem. He sought to understand it by asking the questions. Then he identified the weaknesses and what was going on. And then he offered a helpful solution. Right? He wanted to increase Moses' effectiveness in ministering. The other thing I want you to notice in this is that Moses didn't try to build himself up in the process. Because right? sometimes we try to sneak this in and we call it empathy. Uh, or we try to be relatable. But really we're just trying to build yourself up. Jethro didn't go and say, hey, you know what, Moses? Yeah, like I lead a lot of people too. And I've tried what you do. And um, yeah, it's bad. And so, but you should try what I do all the time, right? Because this is what I do and it works, right? And it's all his advice is just me, 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 right? But that's not what Moses actually does, or that's what not what Jethro does, right? He doesn't do that. He just deals with Moses' problem. He's not trying to just build himself up um, by using himself as an example of how to do things better. And some bonus content number four uh, is this. Encourage as the corrector knowing that you may need to correct. We want to live a life of encouragement, knowing that at times in God's word, we are called to correct, right? I really believe that a big part of the reason that we are called to encourage people is that we are also called to correct people, right? When we encourage people, it builds trust. It builds an understanding that we are for them, that we love them, that we desire what's best for them as a person. And then if God calls you to correct that person, it's going to come over a whole lot better. Right? And we've experienced this ourselves, have you not? Right? When you know that someone that is constantly encouraging you, and then they come and they see something in your life that's off, you take that a whole lot better than the person that never says anything nice to you, and then all of a sudden they, they roll in and they're like, mm, I see some things that are wrong, right? It, it's just a natural sort of human response, and I think God knows that. So yeah, we want to work on dulling that, but I think we can also work on encouraging people. Right? I think it's really, really important. Okay, let's flip to the other side and do the correctee. So first one, no prideful deflections, right? When we are being corrected, you don't want prideful deflections. Look at 24. This is, this is a beautiful thing, right? So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said, right? Not always fun taking advice from your father-in-law, is it? Right? But Moses listened to his voice and did all that he had said. Moses didn't bristle at Jethro, right? He didn't brush him off as an outsider who didn't know or understand the organization. Um, he didn't try to save face, right? This is a classic human thing that we do. And he's like, oh yeah, you know what? That's great advice. I was actually already thinking about implementing that tomorrow, but thanks for coming along and giving me that advice, right? He didn't do that, right? He didn't, he didn't try to brush it off as trying to save face that way, right? And he certainly didn't pull spiritual rank on Jethro, which probably would have been tempting. Like, you know what, Jethro? I appreciate your wisdom, um, but one of two people of us here hear directly from God. Oh, and it's me. Okay, so I'm going to do my own thing. That's not what he does, right? He doesn't pull spiritual rank on him. He listens to what he said, right? He uh, immediately, right, gracefully, gratefully received and implemented Jethro's counsel, right? That's what we see in our text, right, back in Proverbs, that a wise person becomes wiser still when they receive correction. And why do they become wiser? It's because they actually listen. They actually 
correct, they don't just deflect it. Number two, in correction, listen for God's direction. In correction, I didn't mean for that rhyme. In correction, listen for God's direction. Even though Moses frequently right, received that immediate sort of um, verbal direction from God, he also wasn't narrow in his thinking, right? He had an understanding that, yes, just as God can speak to me through a bush or speak from a cloud or whatever, he can also direct me through my father-in-law, right? And so he recognized this, and so he was listening for God's direction. The other thing that I would say in this section is make sure that you weigh the correction that you're receiving, right? Test it against scripture, pray about it, right? Not every piece of correction that you're going to receive from other Christians, if God's, they feel like God's directing them is pure gold, right? Because we are still sinful people, right? We fail. Remember I said that two weeks ago, right? Like I'm going to fail. Not every piece of advice I'm going to give you is absolutely perfect. I'm going to do my best, right? But that's not going to be true. So weigh it against scripture, right? Pray about it, right? So that you would know. But I think it's the fool who throws all of that away and says, I don't want to receive any correction just on the off chance that something is off and they miss all the gold that God does give us. Number three, correction is a gift and not only for you. I found this one uh, to be especially profound, so I just wanted to quote it um, from the article here. This is what John Bloom says. It says, Jethro's correction wasn't just God's provision for Moses. It was also God's provision for the needs of thousands of people. When God brings correction to us through the loving observation of someone else, it's a gift, but not only for us. It's often for many others as well. If we pridefully resist correction, we are likely plugging up a channel of grace to others. There's more at stake in our humility than we realize. And that really hit me, um, I think, and that's something that can hit all of us, right? Because we all have influence on other people, right? Whether you are, whether it's in your work or whether it's in a relationship, right? Or whether it's with a friend or whether you are, um, you're really little or you're bigger than me, but not as old as me. Um, whatever, wherever, whatever stage you're at, right? Th there's an opportunity right, for God to use you not just to bless you, but also to bless others. And when we don't take that correction, a lot of times we are plugging up that channel of grace to others. And number four, uh, just some bonus content again, always be ready to welcome correction. And I know that might sound simple and we might say like, yeah, that's what we've been talking about. But I think it's, um, I think it's really challenging to actually always have a posture ready for it, right? This, this whole area of correction is something that God has been working on me in my life in, and I think that it's something that I'm still growing in. It's something that I recognized in myself, or God showed me in myself that I wasn't um, great at, and so I'm working to be better. And I feel like I'm at the point where um, I've, I've, I've worked to be fairly good at um, receiving the correction when I ask for it, right? When I bring it up, right? Then, uh, then I'm ready, I've prepared my emotions, I know it's coming, right? and I can receive it, and that's good. And that's a good step to take. Um, but I think I still got room to go when I'm not always prepared, right? When stuff comes out of left field, when it's been a really long day and then something hits, or maybe it's not said perfectly. Maybe the corrector isn't perfect in how they're approaching things, right? But I still need to receive it the right way. And so this is something that God's working on me and to always be ready to welcome correction, to love it, to, to constantly um, be ready for it. And maybe you guys are in the same spot. 
All right, so we're going to switch gears a little bit, and we're going to talk take the second part of our process uh, as we look at the fear of the Lord. So you can go back to Proverbs 9, and we're going to look at verses 10 through 12. Go back to Proverbs 9. Proverbs 9, 10 through 12. fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight for by me your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life if you are wise you are wise for yourself if you scoff you alone will bear it so how do we enter this house of lady wisdom right look at what our text says so how do we do that right it's by fearing the Lord and so this can be something that we all say as Christians, like, oh, yeah, we're supposed to fear the Lord, and we have no idea what it actually means, right? It's, it can be very complicated and very confusing to say, what actually does this mean? So I just want to dive into this a little bit, and we don't have time for everything, but I think there's a couple of interesting elements that this statement conveys that w are helpful for us in our understanding here. So first, I believe that the fear of the Lord is a proper understanding of who God is compared to who we are, right? And so when we recognize the greatness and the grandeur and the majesty of God, right, and then we see ourselves down here, that produces awe, and it can produce a literal fear of the Lord. It's a right understanding of God. It's a right understanding of ourself, right, that when we see all those things, his faithfulness and justice and his beauty his majesty, right? And then we compare that to our finite, sinful selves, right? That puts us in our proper place, right? With God on the throne and us bowing down to worship him, right? And I think that li that understanding of this lines up perfectly with um, using correction as a test for wisdom, right? And so you say, why would God use wisdom as a t um, or correction as a test for wisdom? And I think it's this, because those who properly see God and then they, therefore they properly slot themselves, then they recognize wisdom and they welcome correction because they see the chasm between where we are and where God is, but they deal with it in a healthy way, like we talked about, and then desiring to resemble the character of God. But there's another interesting element that this phrase conveys that I want us to consider. You can, uh, we're flipping all over the place today. You can go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Near the front of your Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 10. We're going to look at two different verses from Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10, we're going to start at verse 12 for the first one. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. This whole section talks quite a bit about the fear of the Lord, and so it will help us understand what it means. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. Now Israel... And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding today for your good. If you jump down a little bit more uh, to verses 20 and 21, we'll look at those as well. Jump down to verses 20 and 21. This is what they say. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes 
have seen. And I want you to notice something from both these texts. I hope that your brain's already starting to spin, right? If you notice in both of these texts that we looked at, it says you are to fear God, right? And that's what we're talking about, that you are to fear God, you are to fear the Lord. But then both of them give some explanation as to what that actually looks like. They're going to help explain what it's like to fear the Lord. And notice in both cases, it's the same thing. And this is partially how we know that we're getting a good interpretation because we see it more than once. Okay? And so you look at both of these texts, and what does it say? It says that um, true fear of the Lord is obedience. True fear of the Lord is obedience. Look at both of these texts. What are you supposed to do? You shall fear the Lord your God. And then what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to serve him. You're supposed to walk in his ways. You're supposed to love him and his statutes and the things he's calling you to and the things he wants to correct you towards when you walk away from them. He wants you to obey those. That's what it's like to fear the Lord. Mark J. Boda describes it this way. He said it becomes a term for the faith posture of the ancient Israelites towards the Lord who saved them. It is the human response in the divine human covenant relationship, right? This was to be the covenant posture of Israel with their God, right? That they would recognize who God was and then they would be willing to be corrected, that they would be willing to be guided and that they would be willing to serve him. That's how that covenant relationship was to work. And the same thing is true in our covenant relationship with God, right? Following God implies that you are going to be corrected. It implies that you are going to be changed. So as Christians, we've got to get our heads around this, that we need to actually love this. We have to love this. It's foolishness not to love it. It is impossible. I think it's impossible to grow, to, to really walk as a Christian, right? We can't walk as a Christian and be like, but I don't like being corrected. That's not a thing. It doesn't happen that way. We have to be able to love correction. This is one of the things God's been convicting me on. And so what does this all come down to? It all comes down to change, right? I was listening to a podcast, and it is a mix of philosophy and the Buffalo Bills. Um, and so if you know me, those are two things that I enjoy, and it's quite an odd mix, um, but it works. And um, anyways, this, on this podcast, um, he was telling a story because this guy had a problem with a gallstone. And so he, um, he went to the doctor, and the doctor, they did every, everything they needed to do, all the scans and everything, and they said, you know what, Kay, you got two options. Either you can change your diet, or you can have surgery. And he said, you know what, thank you, I appreciate that. I'm, give me a couple of days to think about it, and then I'll get, I'll get back to you, and then we'll, we'll, we'll make a plan. And so he said he went home, started thinking about it, and maybe a day, day and a half later, um, he gets a call from the surgeon. And the surgeon says, hey, we, we've, um, we'd like to schedule your surgery. And he goes, uh, say what? Uh, I thought the doctor said I have two options. Either I can change my diet or I can have the surgery. And the surgeon says, well, I don't know, but you better go back to your doctor and figure this out because we want to get you booked in. And so uh, he goes back to the doctor and he says, hey, I th what's the deal? I thought I had two options. I thought either I could change my diet or I thought that I could have the surgery. And the doctor um, just looked at him, frankly, and just said, you know what, honestly, we don't ever really expect people to change. We don't ever really see anybody change, so we just go ahead and start booking p the paperwork and getting these surgeries um, going because it's, it's not really something that we ever really see. Right? And I think that is sort of fitting and true for our lives. Right? Our society in general, the way that we operate, we are not um, 
we rarely expect people to change. We rarely actually see significant change in people's life. People are much more likely to do the same thing, right, over and over again. And so that's something that I think we need to be very careful as Christians that we don't fall into that mindset, right? Because the ultimate goal of correction is that change, right? To be made to resemble the character of God, to bring glory to Him, right? And so the, the last thing I just want to close is, yeah, sometimes in our society, people change, right? There, there, is, a, there is a culture that's saying, oh, yeah, you got to change for yourself and do this and do that. But what's it for? It's for them, right? It's not, it's not for God. It's for them. So some people want to change just solely for themselves, but to actually see people willing to change for the benefit of others, to see God glorified, right? That is truly a beautiful thing. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read Proverbs, um, that middle section, 7 through 12, one more time. And I want you to be honest with yourself about where you are at in this and ask God to help you um, in the areas that um, you're struggling um, because I don't think anyone, any of us are perfect at this. I think we all got some ways to go, and then we'll close in prayer. So Proverbs 9, starting at verse 7. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, um, even when it's hard. God, I know that it's been hard on me. God, recognizing um, in general that I need to be better at being corrected, God, being better at desiring, welcoming um, that correction and that change, Lord, in my own life, God, because I really do. I desire to be made um, more like you. I want to bear good fruit. I want um, to be made um, to resemble your character, God. Um, for your glory and for the good of the people, not just for myself, but for the people around me, God. I don't want to plug up those channels of grace that in the places that you have called me to, to lead, God, in this church and in my family, Lord. I, I, I don't want to, um, yeah, plug up those opportunities where you could be using me better, God, to, to impact people's lives. And so I pray that you would help me in this. God, I want to welcome correction, God, I want to welcome it always. I pray that I would love it. I pray that I would do better at seeking it, Lord, from others. God, and I pray that um, you would all help all of us, God, to be a church. God, that loves correction, that loves to change, that loves to grow. And God, that we would change quickly, Lord, that we wouldn't drag our feet, God, or have to listen to the same truth over and over and over again and so often can be true in my life. God, I want to change quickly. God, I want to change for your glory and for um, the good of those around me. Thank you for your word. We thank you um, for all the people that are here, God. We're so grateful for them. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.